Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Web Perspectives. In this episode, we interview CSO and co-founder of Stackhawk, Scott Gerlach, on his DAS platform for automated detection of API security vulnerabilities. As front-end developers, how much should we focus on security? Whose role is it anyway? What does API security even mean in an industry where tooling reigns supreme and NPM vulnerabilities show up by the dozen in modern development tool chains? All this and more in this 40-minute special episode of Web Perspectives. Hi, and welcome to Web Perspectives, the podcast where we cover the minutia of front-end web development, from HTML to CSS to JavaScript. Learn the ins and outs of the industry and supercharge your web development career. So welcome to Web Perspectives. Scott Gerlach is co-founder and chief security officer at Stackhawk, a Denver-based startup focused on empowering engineers to easily identify and remediate security bugs. Scott brings over two decades of security and engineering experience to his current role, having served as CSO, CISO, and in other executive leadership functions at companies like SendGrid, I use, Twilio, I use, and GoDaddy, which I, I don't use. Okay. When he's not at work, you'll find Scott spending time, family, brewing beer, and playing guitar, just like, just like me. <laughs> so, uh, Sean and I were both really cool because I actually worked with Sean on a music program a little while back mm. because we're both musicians, and I know that you play guitar as well. But what you might not know is that all three of us also participate in home brewing. Oh yes. Well, this can't go wrong then. There's no way for <laughs> it to. Exactly. So we wanted to we wanted to just get into it here a little bit and start a little off topic and ask you what attracted you to home brewing from coming from tech. Sure, um, boredom? No, that's not the right answer. The right answer <laughs> is probably I worked in security at GoDaddy there, and that is a really high stress job because lots of people are attacking that infrastructure constantly. Aha! So you needed a drink, is what you're saying? <laughs> well. It was more about it was more about creating stuff. You know what I mean? It's, uh -huh. it's about being able to build things that are not necessarily applications or code or any of that stuff. It's like mm -hmm. woodworking is another thing that I was doing for a little bit. Using your hands to build stuff that's not in your brain necessarily. I mean, it is, but it's not all thinky thinky. It's more creative and a little dash of this and a little dash of this. Those kinds of things. Right on. What's your favorite beer recipe you've ever brewed? My favorite one I've ever brewed. Um, let's see. My wife really likes a vanilla porter that I make in mm. the fall. Yummy. I have made a Pliny the Elder clone like every other home brewer in the entire world. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. And, and I really like that. Some of my favorite stuff are the kind of simple drinkable things like mm -hmm. the German pills or Hellas or Czech pills, those kinds of things. Just mm -hmm. things you don't find a lot of craft versions of that are super drinkable. I haven't made a whole bunch of IPA lately or in recent history because there's so many IPAs out there. Yeah. See, when I got started in homebrewing, you couldn't just go to the store and buy a good IPA. You know, your choices were all something similar to Cruise Light. So that's why I got started so I could go and actually make my own. But now I can walk across the street and there's a whole beer cooler room with probably 600 different craft beers from all around North America and the world. And I, it's, it's really hard pressing for me to want to spend 13 hours of a Saturday <laughs> brewing an IPA with a 90 minute boil, you know? Yes. Yes. I, and, I totally agree. With you. Yeah. So a uh, bottle 
cask, keg. What what do you got? What's, oh, what's your favorite? Oh, keg. Keg, yeah. You got a keyser or a kegerator or all of those things. When we when we nice. moved into this house in Denver, we redid yeah. the kitchen and I built in a tap. Ooh. Keg two two keg fridge and two tap hardcore into the thing into the cabinet it's really hard to drink 10 gallons of beer my kit is a 10 gallon <laughs> kit the more beer yeah. 10 gallon kit it's really hard to drink 10 gallons of beer all by yourself it is you got to have some friends for that right yeah you got to know people you definitely got to know people <laughs> yeah i find it's a lot easier to know people when you, when you homebrew a good beer <laughs> that is also true all right so let's uh let's talk security let's get let's get into the thick of it let's do it we kind of wanted to sit down and figure out like how do we structure an interview on security because it's such a broad area security could be an international level topic really in this day and age network security could be a home concern at your house right yeah. how do you keep your own little wi-fi router at home secure that's right so it's kind of this massive massive scale in this case we're going to talk to you mostly about what it looks like at scale for large corporations one of the questions that came up when I started talking to some people about this opportunity that we have to interview you, they really wanted to know how much their organizations should be spending on security. And mm. I was wondering if you could maybe give us an idea of, is there a magic number that they should be looking at? I, I wish there was. That would, that, <laughs> that would be really awesome, right? If you could just go, it's 200 people and here's how much we spend on security and that applies to everything. <laughs> I think it's hard. It depends on the threat landscape that you have. So I had this conversation a lot at SendGrid. We had a pretty small security team. It was six-ish people. And the employee count there was 300, 400, something like that. But we had a small team and we didn't spend a lot of money. The number one threat vector at SendGrid is bad people using the service to send phishing email or spam email. That was the main threat profile for that company. So what we spend on the security is different than mm -hmm. at a GoDaddy, which was, hey, let's give people access to our servers, give them shell access right. and see how that doesn't go really wrong really fast. <laughs> so there, there was, that's a different threat profile, right? So there was a lot more activity there of using those servers to perpetrate other things like denial services or implant malicious JavaScript download stuff into lots of websites if you can, or you know, handful of other stuff. We also handled payments for customers. So there we had a whole PCI concern and we sold SSL certificates and, and they still do. So we had that whole concern. Obviously, we spent a lot more money at GoDaddy than we did mm -hmm. at SendGrid. And I don't know is the size of the company would have made a difference in that particular equation. It's more about the threat profile and, and how much activity you're having to deal with. If it's pretty low, then invest appropriately. If it's really high, then hopefully you can invest appropriately. Do you think in general that companies are taking security seriously enough, not seriously enough, or are they sort of spot on these days? I think it's the, there are a lot of companies playing catch up. I think people get it. I think the telltale sign that they didn't get it was when they go, we take security seriously. I have said that in a, a press release before, <laughs> and I regretted it instantly. I was like, I mean, I care about security and we are doing this and take it seriously. But saying that is just like a blanket panacea and it doesn't really mean anything. So it used to be that that thought that, hey, no one's going to come attack 
our little business or our little mm-hmm. or our healthcare business or the ER or lots of those things. That used to be the way that a lot of people thought it may or may not have been true. Now, with all of the ransomware attacks that are going on and lots of downtime and all kinds of stuff, people are really taking notice. Executive teams are taking notice, starting to go, what don't I know? What do I need to know? What should I start with? Where do I go? How do I secure a tie? I think it's in a really good space in a lot of executive minds today when they're thinking about the risk profile of their company and the things that could prove them challenges and or existential threats. I like how people are thinking about it today. Whether or not we're doing enough is a whole Mm -hmm. different conversation. And once again, is related to your first question, I think. If there's something that you could say to those C-seats and the V-seats about security that might inspire them to take it more seriously, what would you say to them about that? So I've had this conversation a ton and the trick with this is to speak their language. I think security professionals have a really tough time speaking other languages. Like we have a tough Mm -hmm. time speaking developer language and we have a tough time speaking sales language and we have a tough time speaking marketing language. But if you can effectively communicate to an executive at a company, hey, a breach of our system could result in loss of customer confidence and increase of customer acquisition cost or net dollar retention or you know, the metrics that they talk about the business in, how would that affect the metrics? It means something to them at that point, because those are numbers that they're looking at all the time. And if you go, hey, I want to relate a thing that I care about, and I think that could happen potentially to a number that you care about, and if even if it's a percentage point, it makes a lot of difference in how the business runs and how effective you are at delivering features and how effective you are at capturing customers and all kinds of good stuff. So the thing that I can say to an executive is think about the number that you care about the most and what would happen if it was minorly or drastically affected by a security incident. How would you respond and or address that? And the thing that I say to security professionals all the time is take the thing that you care about and relate it to the things that they care about. Fascinating. Fantastic advice. You mentioned that there's some probability in there. And you were kind of skirting around the, because that's a big conversation as well, right? Sure. Is it really a question of playing the odds or is it a question of when, not if? I think I think it's a question of when, not if. The secondary part of that question is how bad. And that's the odds part of it, right? Um, yeah. What Do you have an example out there from maybe, maybe not one of the companies that you've worked for because they've all been pretty darn lucky to have you, I got to say. But also like from other other companies in other industries that maybe you've heard some horror stories about just how bad some of these issues can become. Yeah. I mean, I always like to take the big issues that we've heard about that are public, the Home Depot, the you know those kind of big breaches. And everyone tries to go, okay, what's the cost per record? And then I'll associate that to my thing. And it just doesn't scale that way because their economy of scale is so great. When you have 50 million customers, 100 million customers, whatever that is, and then try to calculate that down to a cost per record and apply that to your own business, you go, oh, sweet. If we lose 200 records, we're broke. It doesn't, it just doesn't, you know, or, or the opposite. If we lose 200 records, mm-hmm. it'll cost us 50 bucks. It just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't correlate that way, right? But the, the thing that's interesting is Target is still around, Home Depot mm-hmm. is still around. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know as any of those companies actually suffered any massive customer churn from any of those incidents that they had or any massive fines necessarily that were detrimental to their business. Mm-hmm. Like there was cost to clean up an incident and provide record monitoring and all that stuff. Was it detrimental to the business? Was it something outside of the bounds of margin of error in a quarter, in a year? It's really hard to kind of go, here's what happened at a really big company and my company is similar to that and that's what could happen here. So the odds game is interesting, but if you think about cost of customer acquisition, that's a really tight range that it has to live in to make the company profitable and efficient and perform well. And if you move that a couple of basis points or a point or two points, that's actually quite a lot of money that you'd now have to spend to get a customer or that you have to get uh, to spend to get, and then the customer has to be really, really successful to pay back that acquisition cost. Or retention, customer mm-hmm. retention, customer return, those things, those metrics are success of the business in a lot of cases. And playing around with little percentage points, like even it's, a, it's still a guess, right? Mm-hmm. This could potentially impact customer confidence in a percent on customer churn, customer retention, cost of acquisition, how much they spend with us in a year and how much they grow with us. Those little numbers can make a pretty significant difference. So it is still a guessing game to guess what that could be. And if you are privileged enough to have been through that event, still have your wits about you and can study it, you can make better guesstimates at it. You can go, okay, here's what happened last time. Theoretically, if it happens again, it might be a little different, but generally, here's the range that that happens at. Now I've got a really good cost estimation of what a breach could do to our business. Awesome advice there. Thank you. I think one of the hardest questions I have for you today is, you know, we hear about these data breaches all the time. And uh, I think it's pretty easy for most of the population to go, oh, those guys are idiots. Mm. Is it really that hard to prevent these things from happening? Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. I, no. I, it's so easy for us to throw stones at, on Twitter and like, oh man, if you just if you just didn't have a terrible password on this one system in your hundred thousand system fleet with all of its interdependencies and intricacies and all this stuff, then it wouldn't have happened. It's so easy to throw stones. A, if you have breach detection, you probably have a security team and they probably give a crap. And they're probably working their butts off to try to get the company into a safe profile. And be able to detect these things. You can't prevent everything. The safest company there is in the world is one that you just turn off. Yeah, That's the only one you can't breach. You just turn it off. Like, nope, no more. We're done. Unbreachable. The, <laughs> the, the teams that are working on that, hey, we want to do a really good job and we want to get ourselves to a, as a safe of a spot as we can, but we have to be able to t- detect and contain and remediate when something happens. That's how you get those press releases most of the time. And the teams that are working on this stuff, it's not like they're sitting around playing Call of Duty all day, not doing their InfoSec job. They're busting their butts constantly. So it's a hard job. Security is a hard job. You have to be right all the time. Bad guys have to be right once. All right. Fascinating. So you mentioned that, that you could possibly have a team of security professionals helping defend your stuff. Is it their responsibility or does everyone in the organization have a role to play? Oh, this is great. To security. This is a great question. This is, this is one of my favorite topics. 
This is the security is everyone's responsibility topic. Yeah. And that's like saying the toilets in the bathroom are everyone's responsibility. I don't think that they are everyone's responsibility. I think there are a certain group of people who are accountable for cleaning and maintaining the environment in a restroom. I think there are a certain group of individuals who are responsible and accountable for helping set up the business to be successful in their information security journey, set up good policies, good information sharing, good procedures, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Is it everyone's responsibility? No. Sales is not everyone's responsibility. Marketing is not everyone's responsibility. I don't know why we as InfoSec people get to go, Security is, in fact, everyone's responsibility. It's the only one, it's the only thing in the whole company that is like this. It's trust me, it's great. You're going to love it, Mm -hmm. but definitely do your regular job and this other thing. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. Coming back around and getting out of the team of people who are dedicated to security. Sure. uh, Kind of closely related to that, I think, are developers, right? The people in your organization who are responsible for writing user-facing code and managing servers, IT, DevOps, and those kinds of things. And I think most of our listeners are probably pretty familiar with things like SQL injection and some best practices around how do you write APIs and secure your APIs. And not to get into the nitty-gritty details of that. I would wonder what your opinions would be about front-end web developers and designers and user experience architects and the impact that they can have on security. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's a ton of stuff that you can do poorly. I'm looking at you, financial institutions that don't allow you to paste things into password fields (laughs) because somehow that's insecure. And then the sweet range of password length that you can have, it has to be between eight and 30. That's not helpful. That's that's all design type stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not really a technical limitation if you're kind of doing that right to those things. But I think there's a ton of ease of use design pattern that can help an end user make good decisions, be able to use good technology like password managers, whether or not you like a hosted password manager or a self-hosted password manager, or it's a notebook on your desktop sitting on your desk. I'm fine with the notebook on someone's desk at home. The threat model is not people are breaking into my house to find my password book unless I work at some place where that would in fact be the threat model, like the CIA or some other place with really high clearance. So the front end stuff is super interesting. The other thing I think is important about front-end development outside of design is the working agreement with back-end teams, understanding who's doing what with user data Mm. and how we're going to treat it. Having a contract, for lack of a better term, of, hey, we're going to pass you data like this. It's going to be encoded. We're going to do some validation, and you are also going to do validation. And when you pass it back to us, we expect it to be encoded still. I don't see that happening Mm -hmm. at a ton of places. And I think it's super important to be able to go, we did a little bit of sanity on the front end, but you can't trust data from the front end. So double check it again, if you would. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Never never trust the user. That's right. Okay. Fantastic. Let's talk about passwords. Can we talk about passwords for a bit? Because I think we all hate passwords, right? I'm quite positive that at least one person listening to the show has used the password, password123 right? Mm, Because it's easy to remember. And it's probably something that they shared with a coworker. I'm sure we've all shared a password for something with a coworker or a spouse, maybe a friend in the past. What are some of the things that you think might be coming down the road in the future as far as security is concerned and passwords? I've heard some things about two-factor authentication. I've heard passwordless authentication. 
what do you think the future looks like for that? Yeah, that's a super interesting, infinite rat's nest of possibility <laughs> for lack, I think yeah. lack of a better term. Password, I don't think is going anywhere for a really long time, but some of the cool alternative, like uh, I use Apple products. I love Face ID. I know people hate Face ID because mm-hmm. collecting biometrics or whatever. I love it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with fingerprint technology. You know what? I was talking to somebody the other day about fingerprint technology. And I was a kid of the 80s. And mm-hmm. I, I can't remember how the police departments duped us all into like giving up our fingerprints as little kids under the guise of, if you get kidnapped, we'll have your fingerprints. <laughs> but that, def- that definitely happened. And so there's some police department somewhere that has all of my fingerprints already. I'm okay with using fingerprint technology on my phone. Mm-hmm. Smart cards have always been a thing. I also use my Apple Watch to unlock my Mac when I get to it. So that device authentication type stuff is kind of cool. I, I, don't, I don't have that. So I'm not a Mac user, so I'm not familiar with it. Yes. I'm not saying it's perfect and it's the ultimate solution and I'm not trying to Mac mm-hmm. fanboy out. It's just an interesting thing that happens, right? So I've got an Apple Watch on my wrist. When I get close to my computer and try to unlock it, it goes, hey, your Apple Watch is on and you have unlocked it via its passcode and or your phone with Face Mm -hmm. ID or whatever that is. I will use that to unlock your Mac. And I rarely type a password into my Mac. Hmm. So I kind of like that stuff. Where it goes from there, I have no idea. Like two-factor authentication on everything is a thing that looks like it's about to happen, which I love. Having a wife that is a breaker of technology and hater of all things password, (laughs) I get to see the other end of it, right? Like Mm -hmm. in my world, everything's perfect as a security person. And then I get to see the end user version of it where I have a password safe program. I share passwords with her in that password safe program. She -hmm. forgets the master password and the whole whole thing is blown up. Yeah, forgetting passwords is the number one weakness of passwords for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wish I had a better crystal ball on what's going to happen with passwords and authentication. I think there's a lot of cool stuff out there. It's just how do you make it accessible? And unfortunately, typing a password is today one of the most accessible things that you can do with a password. So that's that's tricky. <laughs> passwords aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, what what do you have? You guys talked about this on the show before, or have other? No, first the first time. No, okay, yep. fair enough. I was just yep. curious if you had other ideas. I wish I would love to do anything but type in a password these days. Um, when you have the responsibility of working with SSH keys, for example, so you don't have to type in your password more than once hmm. in a session, and you can just go and connect to all of your services whenever you want at whim after that, it's a real treat. And I would like to be able to do that when working with my web browser. Like you said, I do have a password manager as well, which is great, I love it. I try to share passwords with my wife as well, like for the Netflix password, for example, right? That's one of the ones we share. (laughs) Yeah. And those kinds of tools now are really great, but I think we're still just coming out of maybe the second generation of those as far as user experience is concerned. And the first generation early adopters like me and probably yourself, I'm still stuck with the same one. I'm still using that first one because migrating 600 passwords off of that onto a new one, it's a nightmare to try and comprehend, let alone actually overcome it, you know? Totally. Yeah. Unfortunately, security and usability are often at odds and therein lies the problem. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) a, it's a big problem. 
I'm not a usability expert by any means, but I play one on TV, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. As a front-end developer, I do a lot of uh, user experience and design work as well, but it's not my favorite part of the project, let's just say. Sure. And you're right. You try to be security focused, I think, at all times, regardless of whether you're front-end, back-end, or database, or server, or DevOps. And you're really trying to bring as much as you possibly can in. You know, Sean is much more uh, familiar with large organizations, and I'm the startup guy. I'm usually employee number two. I actually turned down an opportunity to be employee number 12 with LinkedIn way back in the day because Facebook for professionals, that's just stupid, right? <laughs> but look at, look at what happened. Yeah. Maybe I'm not the best example of, you know, follow your dreams, but I love startups and I focus on the smaller companies and password sharing using password tools is how we get around that for a lot of our stuff. But mostly we try to find ways to automate our tool set and get things done, make it repeatable and move on to the next task because mm-hmm. we have so little time to get so much done. Yeah. And so DevOps has actually been quite helpful for us in the evolution of all of that. It's been really great. Security, we don't have a team of six. Regardless of our threat vector, we're going to have a team of one or two, even if we're doing crypto, right? Yep, absolutely. We got to narrow it down. We got to focus. We got to automate. We got to get it out there. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show is because you are the CEO and co-founder of Stackhawk. Oh, I'm not. I'm definitely not the CEO. Oh, no, sorry. You're CSO. Yeah. Joni Clippert, who is wicked smart, is the CEO. I'm the chief security officer. So you are the chief security officer at Stackhawk, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show is because I wanted to get some time and understand a little bit more because we're considering signing up ourselves. And I thought, why don't we have that conversation on the podcast? Hey, look at this (laughs) hot lead right here. Yeah. So can you describe for me what Stackhawk is? Yeah, sure. So Stackhawk is a dynamic application security testing tool, commonly referred to as DAST. So if you know of DAST, you may have a sour opinion of DAST because of how it used to work or how it largely still does work and what it does. But I love DAST because it is language agnostic. So There's been a lot of places I've worked where people have been using Go or somebody wants to use Rust or someone wants to pick up whatever new hotness language it is. And you don't have good coverage from SAST tools or SCA tools or any of these other things that look at the code itself. You're in good shape. If you use Java, you got lots of different tooling. If you go pick a new language because it brings you something, you might not have great tooling. So DAST is great about that because it actually looks at the running application and tries to attack it like a threat actor would. So throw in malicious inputs, see what happens. And the knock on DAST is slow and it doesn't, you know, it's not great at exploring APIs and all that good stuff. PS, the worst part of this whole thing is you have to run it in production. That's kind of how it's designed across most of the industry. So one, There's this problem I've referred to as the pants problem. If you have a website that sells pants and there's an API behind that, there's probably five routes in that API that describe pants and tell you if the pants are in stock and what are the description of the pants and can I upload more pants? I would like to buy pants. And a DAST scanner will go, there's 11,000 routes in here because I have 11,000 different kinds of pants in stock. (laughs) And so it has like this terrible rap, right? And the last problem 
And the biggest problem here is you necessarily have to push security bugs into production to find them using this kind of methodology of we'll push the software to the internet so that we can scan it with a DAST scanner. And then the security person will look at the output of that stuff and see if it's okay or if it's not okay. And then they'll make a ticket. And then when the ticket's done rotting in the backlog and they finally convince someone they should fix the ticket, it gets back to a dev and the dev is like six months out. And they're like, in what thing? I haven't touched that in three months. Uh, I'm going to have to get back into that and figure out how to make it work on my machine so I can troubleshoot it. And eventually they get around to fixing it. And so the point of Stackhawk is to bring all of that tooling into the development process so that you can write code on your laptop or your desktop, put it into running mode, debug mode, and test it. And then know if you're making security errors right there and then before you commit code and put it into CICD. And then when you do commit code and put it into CICD, those same tests run again in CICD to back you up. Very similar to how linting is done today and unit tests and all those good things. Like I can test it on my machine, test good in my machine. When I put it in CICD, it's going to do the same thing. And if someone tries to skirt the rules and sneak some stuff in there, hopefully it catches any mistakes that are being made. So that's the point. And then all of the interfaces that we develop at Stackhawk are all about the developer experience. It's all about how do I get a developer to be able to go, I see an issue. I understand the issue. I can recreate the issue. I have now fixed the issue. Immediately right there while you're working on it. That's right. That just boggles my mind that that's even possible today. Maybe I'm just, I'm shocked at it and I shouldn't be. I've been writing code since 1980 something. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to tell you, there's, there's some things in this world that come across as just kind of magical. And the first time I worked with a linter, I had that, oh, this is what everybody's been talking about. Yeah. And now you're telling me that you can now test for security vulnerabilities in your code while you're working on it at the same time, right alongside your linter. I'm just, and I can put that into my CACD pipeline. Just, there goes my brain. It's weird. I care a lot about developer experience. And I think developers and all the co-founders think developers care about their code. They want to produce high quality code and high functioning code and high speed code. And I think they want to produce secure code. It's just so expensive to know if you're doing that or not. And that comes off as I don't care. It's too hard for them to go, am I making mistakes today? And it comes out as I don't care because I don't want to spend time learning how to be a security professional. I want to do development. And so when you take the view of how can I get as close as possible as I can to when they typed code into an IDE and hit run to be able to test that and go, yep, it's good. I haven't found anything here. So you're in good shape. Or yeah, I did find something. You should maybe fix that. And here's why you should fix it. Here's maybe how you can fix it. Being able to get from test to the end as quick as possible is so much better for everyone involved. So uh, let me give you a little bit of background on our environment here. We have one user-facing monolithic application that's written in Node.js. We have three microservices that are written in Golang. Mm -hmm. We have some Rust out there that's coming on board. And we have a mobile app that's a hybrid mobile app. We have two different databases, actually, and Redis as well. Mm. We've got a MongoDB or some sequentialized live data, and we've got a Postgres with PostGIS on there. Now, how much of that could we potentially get coverage on using Stackhawk? 
well, probably all of those applications, if they are REST API or GraphQL API, and you have good documentation on those APIs, we can test a lot of that stuff. So how about like WebSockets, server-side events, gRPC, any of those things? No gRPC yet because HTTP2. Right. So the important part that you need to know about Stackhawk is we're based on an open source tool called the Z Attack Proxy, Zap, uh, which, is, which is a very well-known, well-used, well-liked dynamic application security testing tool. Simon Bennett, the founder of Zap, actually works at Stackhawk. So it does not support HTTP2 today. So therefore we can't support gRPC. However, we use gRPC at Stackhawk and <laughs> we front gRPC with REST API. So because we have REST API and Swagger Docs open API spec, we can ingest uh -huh. that spec into the scanner and test those services before we release to production, which is what we do. So. That's sort of the answer to gRPC. WebSockets, I haven't run into too many prospects or people that are using WebSockets. This might be the third. So we haven't quite figured out how we want to expose WebSocket testing into the scanner. Here's a really awesome feature that we just released a couple of months ago. A lot of DAST scanners kind of guess because they don't know. So they theoretically are used by a security team and the, the security team may or may not know how the application is built, what kind of technology is behind it. So what happens is they test for all of it and it takes a long time to test for it. Zap and consequently Stackhawk have a really great feature that is called technology flex. So you can get in there and go, this application uses Postgres. This application uses SQL Server and it's written in Java and tune down what it tests for. And it will test those applications with SQL injection type things to try to get into the database through the application. It is very focused on the application. There's no direct testing of the database itself. There's better tools out there that can help you with that, that kind of infrastructure, scanning, default credential, best practice type thing, like Nessus, those kinds of things. We are really, really focused on the application layer itself. That's, that's, uh, that sounds like some pretty powerful tools. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Like a ton of people we talk to are aware of DAST and they go, yeah, this is what I want. And then we tell them, yeah, and you can run it on a laptop and in CICD. And much like what happened here, it kind of blows their mind a little bit. They have to rethink about it. Like, wait a minute, how do I, yeah. oh, how can that, ooh, this is interesting. And then we talk about all the automation that you can do with the tool and it really opens up a ton of stuff. People that don't know DAST and want to go, why should I use DAST or SAST or SCA or any of those other tools that are out there today, uh, we do a little bit of education. And I think the really important part about DAST is it really tries to think about your application like a threat actor would. So if you have a finding in DAST, it's most likely really there, whether you care about it or not is a different thing. Content security policy, I'm looking at you. So it's most likely really there. It's discoverable by other people because we're using similar tools to what threat actors use, and it's probably exploitable. So that's the big difference in what a lot of these tools report as theoretical or probable versus, no, we actually found it by making requests to the application. That being said, SCA and SAST and DAST together all make a very, very powerful solution if you have the right time and effort and all those good things to set up and make them work together. So let's talk about the money. I'm assuming that this is a monthly subscription and that there's some setup, some time to implement questions as well. Yeah. What does time to implement look like for a modestly sized application? 
Yeah. So depends on the application, but our average time to first scan is under 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah. So to get into the platform, mm-hmm. click a bunch of buttons to tell us about your application and get to that very first scan, mm-hmm. 10 minutes. To define REST API or a GraphQL or any of those things, mm-hmm. maybe another five minutes. To configure authentication, now that's a sticky question, isn't it? Because <laughs> who really knows how authentication works? No. <laughs> Early in the business of the company, we talked to 10 customers. We got 12 different ways to do authentication. So everyone does it differently. The tool is really flexible in how it can do authentication, supports things like I use Auth0. Okay, cool. Just write a script, go grab the token and throw it into the config and it will use it. I use forms. We support that. That's usually the hardest part of the thing. Most people get through it in about an hour, two hours. And the hardest part of that is how does authentication work on our app again? Understanding that and then translating it, most customers are in a place where they've got a full scan, half a day. It's a real full scan. Time to Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, some of those other tools, I've used them. They're like months. <laughs> I got to set up the platform. I got to get it all configured. And like, there's, sometimes there's support engagements involved. This is, I want to say worst case scenario, you're looking at four hours, half a working day, four hours to get to this scan is the exact thing I needed to do. So if you're a small shop and you need some extra horsepower on the security front, a half a day is probably pretty doable. And the value that you get out of it is pretty powerful stuff. What about ongoing recurring fees? Yeah, so the you know you can check out pricing on the website there. Today, the way that we have Stackhawk priced, stackhawk.com slash pricing, if you want to go check it out. The way that we have it priced is per user. We're thinking about different ways to price that. But right now, the list price there is $99 per user per month. And by user, I mean people who log into the platform. And that's for the engineers that want to log into the platform and triage these things and recreate the problems. That's for the pro plan. The enterprise plan is a little bit more because of additional features that are attractive to an enterprise, like an audit log, single sign-on, SAML, and lots of other stuff. Stuff little shops don't really need. That, that's pretty cool. I know you guys are relatively new. How long have you been around? When did you guys get started? Yeah, we just had our two-year birthday. Happy birthday. Two weeks ago, we had everybody in town. All, yeah. all of the hawks were in town at the home nest. Oh my God, the hawk puns are amazing right now. <laughs> it was an awesome time because we grew a lot since COVID started. Right at the start of COVID, we were in a shared co-work space. We signed a new lease on a bigger space. We moved all of our desks. We moved all our computers, got it all set up. And then we all instantly went home and never came back. So there was a ton of people that we hadn't met in person. It was super fun to get to meet everybody in person, realize how tall everyone in the company actually is. (laughs) So the company's been around two years. The product has been GA since September of last year. So that's also coming up on a year. Oh, that's really cool. Right on. I'm assuming the pricing is going to be still fluctuating somewhat. If somebody is coming back and revisiting this podcast, it's 2023 and the price is different now. Yeah. Welcome to Startup Life. Yeah, that's right. I can't make any guarantees or promises on pricing because my lawyer's off screen over here. (laughs) That's not true. There's no lawyer here. (laughs) No promises on pricing. However, if you want to get yourself locked into really great pricing and you're listening to this podcast here in August, of 2021, then you should definitely let us know. That's awesome. 
Right on. All right. So what was that domain name again? Stackhawk.com? Stackhawk.com. For more info. That's awesome. And I just want to let everybody else know that I wanted to have this interview with you genuinely because I was really curious to learn more about it. I thought it might be a great podcast and you're not paying us in any way for your appearance here today. So I just want to say thanks very much for your time to come out here and talk to us about security and one of the cool new tools on the block to help solve that problem. Yeah, awesome. It's been a super pleasure to just meet you. Scott Gerlach, co-founder and chief security officer at Stackhawk. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, man. Have a great night. Everybody who's listening to the podcast, keep listening. Hit the subscribe button. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always forget to do that. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast episode of Web Perspectives. This is Sean here, and I know that I wasn't present in this episode. I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update on what's going on with this podcast because we did miss a week. So just to kind of clear the waters here, this podcast is still happening. We'll still try to have regular podcast episodes. Unfortunately, I've been really busy with my life as well as Mike. So we're just slowing down for a bit as we go through some of the material and we edit it. I probably spend close to six to seven hours editing each episode so that you guys get the best quality. So if you do enjoy this podcast, please make sure that you like and subscribe. I know that we often forget to do this, so I will stress that it really helps us to do our best job in this podcast. If you just hit the like button, whether it's on Spotify or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, just make sure that you share the love. And I look forward to seeing you guys all in the next episode of Web Perspectives. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you in the next episode of Web Perspectives.